Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. As COVID-19 vaccination rates rise, restrictions on masks and social distancing are being removed. But how will individuals act to try to prevent the spread of the virus? Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and also coming up on today's show. Open cast mining for copper is wasteful and environmentally damaging. Could there be another way? Instead of mining the deep ocean, we could mine volcanoes. And last week we asked, what one thing will humans always do better than AI? Keep listening for the winning answers. But first, governments of countries with high COVID-19 vaccination rates are eager to unlock their economies and societies. They're starting to relax restrictions that were put in place to curb the pandemic. But few countries are removing them as quickly and completely as England. On July 19th, it will embark on a brave, and critics say reckless, epidemiological experiment. We will stick to our plan to lift legal restrictions and to lift social distancing. Around two-thirds of the country is fully vaccinated. But COVID-19 cases are rising dramatically, fueled by the more infectious Delta variant. Yesterday, the government said that in England, almost all legal restrictions on social contact would be removed next week. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. That includes the end of the legal requirement to wear a mask, the end of social distancing, the so-called one-metre-plus rule, and then no limits on the sizes of gatherings. So events can go ahead, weddings can be of any size, nightclubs can open for the first time, actually, since the pandemic started. There will be some guidance, but those legal restrictions will be gone. Why? So we have to come out of this at some point, and the government had set out some tests for when it would ease the various restrictions that it had imposed. One of them was the successful rollout of vaccines. Also, there needs to be evidence that vaccines are reducing hospitalizations and deaths, which of course we see. And then that the rates of infection we see are not putting sort of an unreasonable pressure on the health service. And it also seems to be the case that the risks are not changed in a big way by the new variants, the vaccines seem to be protecting well against Delta, even though Delta is much more transmissible. But critics say this is completely mad. <laughs> yeah, the news hasn't been greeted with universal appreciation, let's just say. That said, I would also say that there are some scientists who do say that actually this is a reasonable decision. So I don't think it's universally seen as a bad or a good thing. It's certainly seen as a brave one in the sense that we don't really know what the outcome will be. 
If you say that we don't know what the outcome will be, it sounds like policymakers are turning the public into guinea pigs. Well, in terms of the number of infections, I think that's certainly not clear. And one of the reasons it's not clear is because we can't predict how people are going to behave. As you release the restrictions on the population and they start to circulate and mix and do the things that they normally would do, you're going to get an uptick in infections. And that's going to happen anywhere in the world where you do this. So the question is, what is the size of that uptick? Uh, The health secretary has said we could reach 100,000 cases of COVID per day. Sounds like a lot. It does sound like a lot. But the intention is that the number of hospitalizations will be relatively low. But if that isn't what pans out, then the government is going to have to do a rethink. We've seen that in Holland where they've got a really severe uptick in cases and they've just decided that the rise is unsustainable and they're going to have to reintroduce some restrictions. Now, the government in England has said, if we don't do this now when we benefit from the fact that it's summer and that children are not in school, then having an exit wave in the winter could have worse consequences. Natasha, what is the risk of removing the legal restrictions, for example, abandoning face masks? I think the issue with face masks here is that the government is sending two very different messages. It's kind of removing the legal requirements and sort of saying, well, well, hang on, actually, maybe you might still want to use them. The guidelines uh, will be very clear on things like mask wearing. There's an expectation of people to wear masks indoors, in crowded places, on public transport. There's both a personal responsibility and a corporate responsibility. I think this is an error. Requiring people to still wear masks is a small infringement on their liberty. And it's also a useful bit of viral control. And it also sends a sign to people that while we are sort of back to normal, we're not entirely back to normal. What you really want to see over the coming weeks is a gradual return to normal. Natasha, what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be wearing your mask? Absolutely. I will be wearing my mask in crowded places. I'll certainly be making sure to try and keep the one metre rule if I can indoors. I'll be exercising a lot of care and attention because the 19th of July does not mean the pandemic's over. Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. The question of how many people in England will tear off their masks and abandon physical distancing remains to be seen. For the first time, England's government is aiming to make COVID-19 precautions a personal choice. But the transmission of COVID-19 is not determined by the activities of individuals in isolation. Each person's action has consequences for others. A mask reduces the risk of COVID for the wearer, but for the others around them as well, who may be more vulnerable to the disease. And the more chances of COVID spread, the greater the risk that new variants emerge, ones that may evade today's vaccines. Over the past year and a half, authorities have tried to enforce substantial changes to people's behavior. The Economist data team's Normalcy Index, which tracks a range of activities before and during the pandemic, suggests that so far, people are clawing back as much normal life as governments will allow. But as lockdowns ease further, Will social distancing practices stick? I actually expect that people will fairly quickly go back to behaviors that they were used to engaging in, like not wearing masks if they aren't required to and gathering with their friends. 
once the restrictions are lifted. Katie Milkman is a professor of behavioral science at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the author of How to Change on the Forces that Shape Human Behaviors. Most of the things that we've been doing during the pandemic have been a bit worse than the things we were doing before. And in general, when a restriction or a policy change lifts that allows us to return to behaviors that are desirable, we're going to jump back into those old patterns. Habits aren't likely to last unless they're rewarding for some reason. And a lot of these habits haven't been rewarding for us. What about the lessons from America or Israel as they've been removing mask mandates and the restrictions in gathering in certain states? What have we learned about opening up there that might tell us something about how opening up is going to look in England and elsewhere? We don't have any excellent data from studies on this yet. What I can say is that we have seen in the press evidence that there's lots of travel again, in the U.S. at least. So people are moving again. And at least in the state I'm in currently, I'm in California, masking has really gone by the wayside since regulations were removed. There are some businesses that are continuing to enforce it, but this is a high vaccination state, relatively speaking, and people are not continuing to mask up. Now, there are some states that have lower vaccination levels that are seeing outbreaks where the government is still encouraging masking and avoiding large gatherings at this point. And I don't know what things look like there, but it does seem that most people have not maintained habits. If a habit researcher were to say why that is, I think they would say these are not habits that were developed in a way where they were rewarded in the long term and people expected them to be useful in the long term. They were very temporary. Everyone hoped to go back to normal. It was uncomfortable to be wearing masks to some degree, not that uncomfortable compared to the health saving value, but uncomfortable enough that once you no longer believe you need it, you're going to take it right off. And I think habits experts have been predicting this from the get-go, that we weren't going to see a society where 100% of people were masking up after the pandemic because they hoped not to get a cold. So it's not surprising to me that we're seeing mostly these things are going by the wayside. So in your perfect world, what would you recommend that governments do to support the public health goals of maintaining precaution while supporting the public interest goal of keeping some sort of social fabric alive with interactions? I think my message would likely be, even if masks aren't required, they're recommended. So one thing I think government could be doing is messaging about the high fraction of people who like protecting others by wearing masks and see this as a patriotic activity and a way that they can take care of their communities. So that's a positive message about how common it is for people to choose to put on masks in order to protect others. That's one thing I would emphasize. And then the other is the opportunity to be a caretaker. And there is a lot of research showing that the message of looking out for other people can be highly motivating, particularly in health situations, even more so than the message around looking out for myself. There's a wonderful study showing when signs went up in hospitals saying, wash your hands to protect others. That was actually more effective at changing hand-washing behavior than messages saying, wash your hands to protect yourself. Has the COVID-19 pandemic taught us any lessons or shed any insights about mass behavioral change? For example, can it inform the need for behavioral change when addressing other important issues like climate change? I honestly feel that the biggest thing it has shown us 
is how critically important it is to have more insights in this area. I think we have a lot to share from the research that's been done, but a lot of research in this area has not been focused on policy lessons until really the last 10 years. It's largely been a laboratory-based science to understand how people behave and what changes their behavior. And it's clear that to tackle these major challenges like a pandemic or a climate crisis, we need to understand how people interact out in the world and what are the messages that truly change behavior en masse. And those things can be very different. So I I think it's created an impetus for investing more, frankly, in the kind of behavioral science research that can tackle policy problems rather than the kind that helps us understand the internal workings of the mind. Now, let me pick up on that, but let me do so, if I may, with a challenging question to you, but I mean it in the sense of camaraderie and elucidation, not criticism. If I was to score behavioral science in the COVID pandemic in terms of how well it performed to get people to do what they ought to do, I'd put it at three or four. I'd say basically it didn't work. How would you score your own discipline in terms of how well it's performed to get people to do the right thing for public health? So I'm going to dodge this question a little bit and say, actually, what frustrated me most is how little behavioral scientists were consulted on how to handle this and how much of the messaging came straight from public health groups rather than groups with expertise in behavioral science, for instance. I don't think best practices were used in the vaccine rollout in early days. Now everyone's scrambling in the United States to run vaccine sweepstakes or lotteries and to deploy incentives. But in the fall, when I was working with hundreds of other behavioral scientists to try to figure out what could we do proactively, what advice could we give, because we knew this moment was coming. And I wish I'd seen a lot more adoption of the ideas we proposed to make sure that it was clear that this is the norm. Most people want the vaccine. We emphasized hesitancy so much instead of emphasizing that most people are clamoring for this thing and that increased hesitancy, most likely. Uh, We didn't tell them there was a vaccine reserve for them, which is something my team had proved in the fall and that could be effective in increasing the likelihood people would actually want the vaccine. So I don't know how behavioral science scored. What I would say is the world didn't score very well in looking to behavioral science. And I hope in future crises we'll appreciate that there needs to be more of an engagement with behavioral scientists to try to get those best practices deployed immediately and not a scramble when things start going badly to say, oh, shoot, we better talk to these folks now and see if they can fix what's gone wrong. Katie Milkman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. You can read a terrific commentary that Professor Milkman wrote for The Economist by Invitation section on how to nudge hesitant people to accept the COVID-19 vaccine on economist.com slash buy dash invitation. And you can keep up to date with how the world is returning to some form of normal using our normalcy index. It's on economist.com slash coronavirus. And if you want to learn about something a little more out of this world, read about the Chinese and American space race in this week's issue of The Economist. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. Tell them that Ken sent you, and the link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. 
What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Next up, copper has long been an essential element of human civilization. It was the first metal worked by human hands, hammered into jewelry as much as 11,000 years ago. Today, copper runs through the entire electricity grid and is crucial for construction and industry. More than 20 million tons of the stuff are used every year, and demand is only expected to rise as economies try to go green. Solar and wind installations, for instance, use far more copper than their fossil fuel counterparts. Catherine Dreieck is the Economist Environment Editor. And electric vehicles are estimated to contain four times more copper than combustion engine cars. So we're going to use a lot more and need a lot more of this in future. So how is the metal currently sourced? At the minute, it comes from deep inside the earth. Big lumps of rock are basically dug up, crushed in order to extract the small amount of copper that they contain. Typically, only about 1% of the rock is actually the metal. And then there's a massive industrial process involving some various nasty chemicals in order to extract and purify that metal. Now, is that method of mining sustainable? There's a huge environmental footprint, um, not just in terms of the vast area of land that ends up being torn up with consequences for the local biodiversity, etc., but also in terms of the chemical processing. Demand for copper rises steadily every single year. And so as a result of this, there has been an interest in finding new sources of copper. And where are those new sources of copper going to come from? One possibility that many of our listeners may have uh, heard about is the possibility of mining the bottom of the ocean. So the deep sea has these vast plains that are several kilometers down. And some years ago, researchers with remotely operated vehicles discovered that on some of these plains, they're known as abyssal plains, there are these sort of fields of potato-sized lumps of metal just sitting on the bottom of the ocean, these nodules of metal. Um, And that has spurred a big interest in an industry, a nascent industry that's known as deep sea mining. It's still not off the ground and it's been mired by technological and regulatory hurdles. But there's another possibility that has been suggested by researchers at Oxford University led by John Blundy. And that's that instead of mining the deep ocean, we could mine volcanoes. Wait a minute, what? How would that work? So all of the copper in the world actually originally comes from volcanoes. And these researchers have shown how all of the metal ores that are mined around the world are formed over millions of years when sulfur-rich gases rise up through the plumbing of active volcano and bump into these brines, these sort of super salty pockets of water that also contain metals. And then you get this chemical reaction that forms the ores, and over millions of years, slowly the ores erode and rise up through the surface, and that's sort of a long geological process. And what the researchers are suggesting is that you sort of cut out the the middleman and go straight to the metal-rich brines. So in the future, could people drill for copper in the same way they drill for oil today? Yeah, that's basically the idea. You would sink 
really big drilling operations, a little bit like oil drilling operations, into volcanoes. And you'd go in the range of two kilometers down to tap into these briny layers above the magma. And then the fluid would rise up through the boreholes and come to the surface. Now, there's obviously some technological issues, as you can imagine, to doing this. So let me get this straight. They're not actually putting a big pipe down into the magma. They're simply taking the metal ore from the rocks above the magma. Yes. So remember, these brines, which are super salty water that's sort of dissolved in the rocks, are actually found above the magma. So they would be drilling down into the layer that's directly above the magma in order to release effectively super hot, super salty liquids. So they're not solid at this point. They're, they're releasing liquids in which the metal is dissolved. Are there enough of these little pockets of brine and is there enough copper in them to make this method commercially viable? I think it's fair to say that this is going to require some more research. Um, but Dr. Blundy has recently published a paper that um, sort of looks for evidence in surveys that are carried out on volcanoes around the world. They've looked at some 40 volcanoes. And what they do is they look at these electromagnetic surveys because the briny layers are basically more conductive than everything that's around them. And they do pick up more conductive areas in all of these volcanoes. So they're suggesting that every single volcano on Earth probably has a briny layer that is also very rich in metals. They've also confirmed this with rock samples from a small number of volcanoes. And they found that these samples do in fact have um, very, very valuable metals, not just copper, but also lithium, zinc, gold and silver. Now, it's worth noting that each individual volcano probably is only going to yield a fraction of what these mega mines, for instance, the, the mines in Chile, yield every year. So they've done some modeling estimates and they suggest that there might be um, 1.4 million tonnes of copper beneath New Zealand's White Island volcano, for instance. If you contrast that with um, the world's largest mines, they tend to hold tens of millions of tons. So you're not going to have a handful of mega volcanic brine mines. But the idea is that instead of concentrating our extraction of copper in a handful of mines in a handful of countries around the world, you could mine many more volcanoes in many more countries and sort of distribute the extraction in that way. And what about the environmental impact? How would drilling for copper compare to today's open-cast mining? So in terms of the physical footprint, you've got to bear in mind that today's massive, massive open pit mines are, you know, these huge scars on the landscape. Whereas by contrast here, you'd have at each site some, some boreholes. So obviously that would be physically much smaller. Um, and then there's also the chemical impact. You wouldn't need to do the same kind of chemical processing. One advantage that this could potentially have is also that being sited at volcanoes means you could run the entire thing on geothermal energy and so you wouldn't have necessarily a carbon footprint either. But I think we need to bear in mind that this is really very, very early days. Nobody has yet done an environmental impact assessment. When they first proposed deep sea mining, everybody thought that that was going to be environmentally friendly. It turns out that's not necessarily the case. And so really, this is very, very early days. That's so interesting. 
Catherine Blake, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Last up, as loyal listeners know, we regularly give away a book on the show to the person who answers one of our imaginative questions with suitable insight and pith, invoking both hemispheres of their brain, the analytical and the creative. On last week's show, we interviewed Dr. Kate Crawford, the author of the recent book, Atlas of AI, and asked the question, what will humans always do better than AI? We received nearly 1 million replies. Okay, really? Around 100. And they were fantastic ones. Many mentioned emotions like nostalgia, holding grudges, awkward silences, never on Babbage, self-doubt, I'm filled with those, empathy, sympathy, jealousy, love, making love, humor, forgetting things, and um, something else. No matter. Other common answers included social skills, teaching children, philosophizing, dreaming, and music. Procrastination was a popular answer. Many of our listeners took valuable time away from their work to email us that. Some answered exploration and discovery where there is no training data. In fact, there's a whole book on that called Framers, which we gave away last month, but I digress. Our official shortlist includes happy mistakes that occasionally lead to significant discoveries inspiring others. We receive some lovely tautologies or logical loops, such as humans will always be better at being human than AI. One humble listener wrote, humanity will always be better at assuming they are the center of the universe. AI will know better. All the replies were a delight to read and reflect on, but the two winners are Salvador Esclante in Mexico City, who wrote, the act of dying. For AI does not truly die, it can always be rebooted and in principle be reprogrammed. For a human, on the other hand, death means utter seizure of existence, at least in a material sense. Thus, a person's life, unlike the life of an AI, is defined by the prospect of death and by one's own efforts to confront it, to avoid the thought of it, or to find meaning in the face of it. Now, another listener mentioned death, but we preferred the act of dying and the reasoning in the answer. Our second winner is Dr. Yassim Hayat, who wrote, Our ability to question everything, including ourselves. Humans can resist our own programming and doubt the algorithms instilled in us from childhood. And AI will take its initial algorithms and data as fact, possibly entrenching biases. Thank human ingenuity for its ability to question absolutely everything. And thanks to our winners. They'll receive a copy of Kate's book. And a huge thanks to all who participated. And there's even more thanks to spread around. Thank you for listening to Babbage. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Yes, I say that every week. But this time, really, please, as a personal favor to me, do it. It allows more people to discover the show and be a part of our community. And the more that people have a deep understanding and appreciation for technology and evidence-based decisions in life, the better off society is. So, to improve this dusty world, please rate our show right after the episode ends. The producers are Jason Hosken, Abisoye Oshindairo, and Amika Shortino-Noland. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. 
I am Kenneth Couquier, practicing all their names in front of a mirror all morning long. And in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.